0: Welcome to Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. I'm Chris from PleasureMechanics.com and on this podcast we have honest, explicit, wholesome conversations about sex, pleasure, joy, and connection. Come on over to PleasureMechanics.com where you will find all that we have to offer you. And if you are new to the show, go to PleasureMechanics.com slash free and get started with our free online course so we can deliver our best resources straight to your inbox. On today's episode, we are going to be exploring the terrain of troublesome turn-ons. The realm of experience and emotions and internal strife when what turns us on, when what we desire, also creates shame, feels worrisome, or is potentially illegal or even impossible to experience. How do we explore those turn-ons with more compassion and less fear while staying in alignment with our own lived ethics and values? We are going to be exploring this tricky terrain with Nicoletta Heidegger, a licensed marriage and family therapist, practicing in Los Angeles, but sharing her wisdom globally on her own podcast, Sluts and Scholars. You'll find links to her body of work in the show notes. Nicoletta, welcome to Speaking of Sex. Can you please introduce yourself and the work that you do in the world?
1: Hi, thank you for having me. I I always find myself getting into like a meditative state when I listen to your voice. So I have to be like, oh, okay, I'm awake. Sorry. Like it's, <laughs> it's so soothing. But yes, like you said, my name is Nicoletta. Welcome. <laughs> uh, I use she, her pronouns. Uh, and I am a, a therapist specializing in sex therapy uh, based out of Los Angeles. And Mostly I see folks in private practice, uh, but my practice is a little bit unique as I'm also uh, certified uh, and do work as an equine and animal assisted therapist. Um, So my office is at a ranch. Uh, My neighbors are pigs, goats, sheep, chicken, uh, and the like. And so I do that as well. And then I also host retreats and do education and the podcast, um, which y'all have been on. And if you haven't listened to the episode, definitely go for it. It's an amazing, amazing one um, called Slots and Scholars.
0: Hmm. And you'll find links to all of that. And I wanted to ask you about some of your areas of specialty of research, which is part of why I invited you on for this episode specifically. Um, because while your surroundings sound really wholesome and relaxing, and I want to come do sex therapy on a farm. Um, you
1: know, whenever people hear that though, they're like, <laughs> "Sex therapy and horses." They get all sorts of uh, interesting ideas. Which maybe but, we can talk about that too. <laughs> exactly.
0: So this is part of it: is our erotic imaginations go to these places. Mm-hmm. Um, Um, And you don't shy away from kind of the edges of the erotic imagination and desires that some would call troublesome or that bring people to your sex therapy office in distress about what turns them on. Can you introduce us a little bit to this theme and your specialization here?
1: Yeah, I think I've always been interested in, quote unquote, taboo topics. And I sometimes don't even like to use that word because I think taboo is so culturally and subjectively defined, you know, what's Mm -hmm. taboo for me, which is like mostly nothing now um, is not taboo for another and it's taboo for someone else. You know, it's very subjective. Um, But I would say I first really got interested in this when I was doing my master's of education um, at Widener University uh, in human sexuality. And I did a couple papers on some interests uh, that I had, some involving like uh, age play and role play and consensual non-consent fantasies and things like that. And, um, I, you know, the research was was fascinating, but also very validating to me. Uh, but I think I really honed in on this topic for my dissertation as uh, we had someone come talk to one of our classes who was experiencing um, a desire that was illegal, something that would have been uh, unethical yeah not legal and also potentially harmful to act on. Mm-hmm. Um, and they came and spoke to our class and they basically shared that they had been looking for about 10 years for a therapist to work with them. And every therapist that they went to basically uh, either shamed them, turned them away, didn't offer any additional referrals or resources. And this was something that they didn't want to act on, didn't necessarily think they were in danger of acting on, but were're trying to figure out how do I, exist in the world? How do I get fulfilling relationships? How do I treat myself and get treated like a human being and get health care and emotional care support? And even when I talk about it now, I like find myself getting emotional because my sexual expression is so crucial to my identity, to my life, to every facet of my being. And that's not true for everyone, but Um, I was thinking, like, what would I do if my interests, my attractions, my desires could not be acted on and I was getting no support? Um, And I thought this was really irresponsible for the field of mental health to not have a standard of care uh, for all human beings, even ones that we might consider um, abusive, bad, harmful. Uh, so in my practice, I, I really open it up to folks across the spectrum as a place where they, you know, it's a safe place to, to explore everything. Mm. Um, and that, that felt really important to me.
0: Mm. And I really want to pause there and take a moment to honor this piece of not only is like what we consider taboo or kinky or really subjective thing, um, like some people's very vanilla sex is another person's extreme kink, yeah. but also the cultural context of this, and that so many of the sexual freedoms that listeners of this show enjoy, um, in countries right now in the world are illegal or states um, in
1: their states in our own country
0: states in this country of the united states exactly yeah. and like and given different cultural conditions and contexts not only illegal but like persecutable and mm-hmm. shameful yes but also um cannot be revealed at risk of persecution and that for most yeah. of history a lot of sexuality has been like this and so there's a reason so many of us have this like deeply vaulted place of desires that feel verboten, that feel like they cannot be acknowledged, let alone uttered aloud, let alone fulfilled. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I want to touch on what you said, because
1: I think it's so important um, to acknowledge the impact of like inherited Uh, intergenerational trauma and systemic trauma. And for listeners out there, if you haven't, I'm guessing you've talked some about this maybe on your podcast, but for listeners out there who don't know what that is, it's basically there's there's more and more research showing that uh, traumas and experiences that our ancestors have had actually show up in our DNA. um, And this is done as a sort of survival technique in our genetics to avoid things that have been harmful in the past. Um, but unfortunately, some of the things that have been harmful in the past are no longer threats, but our, our DNA, our body may still respond that way. And so I I do think what you're saying, there is this inherited, and cultural, but there is this inherited trauma about some of the persecut- uh, yeah, persecutory sex stuff, because our ancestors may have literally been persecuted for that. And so it may have been, I don't know, a lot of research on the sex-specific stuff, but For other things, I could see how this would be translated, and that it could literally be in our sort of DNA as a survival technique. That, like, oh, I can't be into that because that would make me unsafe. Mm
0: Hmm. Mm Hmm. Unsafe, unlovable. Um. That you don't belong anymore. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about shame, so much of this is a sense of like social belonging and connection, which is why I hear over and over again, right, in our inboxes, I suspect yours too. Um. Every day is a sense of, I thought I was the only one who felt this way. Yes, am I normal? <laughs> the am I normal questions? And the how long people have suffered with a sense of being abnormal.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So in service to all, let's just for a minute, like, explode this idea of what is normal to desire when it comes to sexuality and the, like, kind of spectrum and range there of, like, what we desire to do versus, like, where our imaginations go. Right. And we talk about this a lot as like fantasy versus desire. Um, and I think getting that distinction is really important here when we think about things like what our imaginations crave versus what we actually want to do in real life.
1: Yeah. And uh, one of my teachers, I don't know if they were quoting someone else, but they said something in one of my classes that like trying to control your fantasies is like trying to tame a T Rex. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I also, if I don't know if you've seen that movie, The Babadook, uh, <laughs> okay. before. Um, but basically there's this monster and spoiler alert if you want to watch the movie (laughs) delete this part uh turn it down but um there's this monster and it's like once you see the monster it doesn't leave Uh, Mm
0: -hmm. and the more
1: you try to fight it the more you try to run away from it the bigger and the stronger it gets and what happens in the end is when this uh the main character basically is like Bucket, um, I can't run from this anymore. Uh, and invites this monster kind of into her home. It becomes this like docile dog that lives in the basement. Um, and so I think research shows the same mm. that there's this like backfire effect to shame. That the more we shame something, actually, maybe the more likely we are to uh, become obsessed with it. As opposed to, I think a lot of people believe if you give voice to something, if you give it a platform. Uh, that it makes it more dangerous, like, like sex education for kids. So, I mean, in my practice, not even going into the desires that people can't act on, I would say everyone I see in my practice has some component of this. Um, and the types of things that folks come in with, some is just like, do I deserve pleasure? You know, yeah. like it's taboo to even feel yeah. that they are deserving of pleasure or pleasure able, um, Another common one is the way that people orgasm. Especially for people with vulvas, it's um am I allowed to use a tool or a toy? Um why can't I, you know, have an orgasm just from penetration? Uh what if I don't have an orgasm every time? Um am I normal? Am I normal is the the question I always get. And then the, for partnerships is like we've been together for 5, 10 plus years, why don't we want to have sex <laughs> the way we used to anymore? Like there's so many layers of this um, that I see every day.
0: Yep. Yep. Or we want to have sex with someone outside the marriage. How do we handle that? Um, What are the ethics of that? Like, how do we integrate what we want with who we are? Um, That kind of integration piece, because a lot of this is the messaging that like people like you don't want things like that. Mm-hmm. And the scripts that we get on with that of, like, a man like you shouldn't want that, dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a good
1: partner, you shouldn't, if you're if this person is the, quote, unquote, the one, uh, then you wouldn't crave and desire other people.
0: <laughs> and these internal mental loops can become so strong. And, like, I really, again, want to name the spectrum here between, like, there's some people who just kind of hold these things in a sense of privacy and maybe only reveal them once they feel really trusting and intimate with a partner. Um, all the way to a sense of internal distress that can disrupt our lives and our sense of self-worth. Um, and where we are on that range, a lot of it has to do with like how much support and uh, resources we've had access to over our life to understand what we feel within the spectrum of normal. Um, and so I just want to name these kind of like the places of imagination where it's like mythical animals, extraordinary circumstances, sex under duress. Um, You've named consensual non-consent, which is also called like a ravishment, talking about age play, um, incest play. Like I want to name some of these things, body parts and functions, right? A listener called in recently to talk about his fart fetish Mm -hmm. and how does he bring up his fart fetish with people he's dating? So, like, given this whole spectrum of, like, where our imaginations go to, and then mm-hmm. given the range of, like, hold this as a fantasy alone versus animate some of this in our real lives, like, how do you approach this with a client to, like, discern what wants to come alive versus what wants to stay internal and, like, how to sort through this a little bit?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think first <laughs> first, it's discussing... Uh, Is this something that's just a fantasy? Or is this something that you really want to act on? Um, And how would that be? You know, what are the potential situations? And I often start that with just a metaphor of fantasies that we have outside of sexuality. Because I think when people start with the sexual fantasies. And if there's already a lot of shame about it, it's hard for them to wrap their head around this. So I try Mm -hmm. to acknowledge just like human fantasies that we have every day, whether that's somebody cut you off on the freeway and you wish you had like some rocks to throw at their car or could like (laughs) follow them and just give them a piece of your mind. Um, Or I don't know if you've had this one. This is my Uh, a sadistic fantasy that's non-sexual where if someone's (laughs) carrying a big tray of something and I'm like what would happen if I just fucking (laughs) flipped that over you know like just the like this destruction fantasy or Mm -hmm. you know the fantasy of an ex-partner who's wronged you and maybe what you wish or fantasize about could happen to them and retribution so We have fantasies all the time that we don't act on, whether that's for cultural reasons or because we don't want to get in trouble or because we know it's quote unquote wrong or we don't really want to do it, but it's sort of like therapeutic or healing in our mind to uh, play out the fantasy. And I want to ask you, is there something
0: in the research that like points to why our brains love to do this and love to kind of create extraordinary circumstances?
1: Okay. So my belief on this, um, has to do with a subject called uh, somatic experiencing. Um, and so I know you talk about somatics on this podcast, so stop me if you've covered this, but, um, for listeners out there, it, it might be interesting for you to read a book called *Waking the Tiger*. Mm-hmm. Um, and the book basically talks about how most animals, especially predator animals like ourselves, are able to complete their survival resource or sorry their survival action. Um, so if something is attacking them, they don't think about what are what are other dogs going to think about me. Um, they just act on their survival instinct most of the time. Uh, whereas humans, because of a little more Internal nervous system complexity um, and culture and other things, um, we can often have like a freeze response to things. And so when we have that freeze response, our nervous system is unable to complete a survival response. And so there are some therapies out there that really urge that in order to sort of complete things within us to heal trauma that is laying dormant in our body or actively in our body, that we have to find a way to sort of act out this survival response or this fantasy, if you will, in a safe holding environment so that our nervous system can feel complete. Um, and so my, my thought on this is that this probably relates to some of the, the sex stuff as well. Um, so if a client is coming in to see me, I mean, first we spend, you know, lots of sessions, um, really doing some, I guess what I would call like compassionate detective work. Mm -hmm. Um, So we'll go through Mm -hmm. some exercises. One I really like is called the circles of sexuality, but basically getting a really thorough relational, cultural, personal history on sex and relationships to see what are their cultural and personal scripts around sex, around shame, around relationships. So I could see how, what is the lens under which they're viewing this world. Um, And then depending on what's going on with that, I would say the next steps often encompass um, connecting them to community, but often folks aren't Mm. immediately ready for that if they're so ashamed of what's going on for them. Mm. Um, So I'm sort of their first community member, I guess, if you will. Mm. And so it's getting them used to and me modeling and normalizing the no shame approach to talking about things and getting them used to having those words in their mouth or in their space or hearing certain words and sort of saying it with a, um, compassionate, empathetic, like holding lightness, mm-hmm. um, that allows them to start practicing just even talking about it. Cause so many of my clients are coming in and naming things for the very first time. And so the work is sometimes, excruciatingly slow sometimes for both of us. Like it's mm-hmm. it's hard to be patient with oneself. Um, but so I would say that's usually where the therapy work starts.
0: Mm. The tenderness of that process of saying something out loud we've held so deeply buried for so long is so real. And I'm just also reminded here of like the power of conversation and how this can be scaled at community, right? As we all Mm -hmm. become more comfortable talking about sex and more open-hearted with these conversations, we can hold these conversations with one another amongst friends. Um, We're gonna talk more specifically about how to navigate these spaces and stay in alignment with our ethics and values. I just wanna give a quick shout out to our sponsor and our mutual sponsor to your podcast as well, Uberlube,
1: woo! We love you, Uberlube.
0: <laughs> we love Uberlube. I've been using Uberlube for probably a decade or more, so we are thrilled to welcome them as sponsors of Speaking of Sex. Uberlube is a luxurious, high-grade silicone lubricant made from clean, body-friendly ingredients. It's great for all kinds of play on the vulva anal, vaginal, even for full body massage. And truth be told, I use it for things like squeaky door hinges too. It is clean and simple silicone lube that can go all over your body. It's condom compatible. And what I love about Uber Lube is it really allows sensation to translate through the glide and slide of the lube. It enhances the touch you're giving rather than distracts from it. Uberlube is a proud sponsor of this podcast and is offering speaking of sex listeners 10% off and free shipping when you use the code pleasure at uberlube.com. That's 10% off and free shipping. Just use the code pleasure at uberlube.com. U-B-E-R-L-U-B-E, uberlube.com. And you will find links in the show notes page. So I love knowing that Uberlube is on the bedside tables of all the sex educators. <laughs> yes,
1: I have it in, on my bedside, in my shower, in my purse. I use it on my hair, even like it's mm-hmm. a it's a multi-purpose uh, tool.
0: And it comes in these like beautiful little glass pumps that like dispense at the perfect amount, and I always feel like very slick using it too. Thanks, Uberlube, for sponsoring this episode and helping make this conversation possible. All right. So as we think about this whole range of troublesome turn-ons, and I want to give a shout out to the late great sexologist, Dr. Jack Moran. In his book, The Erotic Mind, which is a foundational text for so many of us, he really names troublesome turn-ons as one of the main things that brings people to the sex therapy office But also this realm, like for him as a gay male sex therapist in the 70s, like so much of what we think is troublesome is actually really quite normal and healthy and just an expression of human sexuality. Um and yet, and yet, there are things that we cannot always act on. Some of this is like we just have to bust through the shame, and we realize like anal play is totally possible. Uber lube is at my bedside, we're ready Mm to go. Um, and that process can take years, even just getting through the shame. How do you work with clients who have fantasies, turn-ons that feel impossible or totally out of reach? How do you start that work where it's not such a simple matter of slaying the shame, but it's really like integrating what the seemingly impossible?
1: Yeah. Well, I really liked how you differentiated at the beginning of like, what is quote unquote impossible? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think there are lots of things that people feel might be impossible or inaccessible to them. And this could just be as simple as not. I mean, this isn't simple, but this could be they're in a relationship that the bounds don't allow for this kind of play. And so Mm -hmm. maybe that's deciding, well, is this a big enough need that I need to figure out either how to bring this into my relationship or find a relationship that is open to this. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's lots of things that are possible. And then for folks that have fantasies that don't involve, um, human creatures that could be anything from um, folks who are into like anime or characters or um, mythical creatures or ghosts or aliens and I mean if you're, you're if you believe that they exist like you know it's definitely possible uh, I mm-hmm. want to believe uh, but, you know there's lots of creative outlets um, that are out there um, and then of course ranging to the interests that are either illegal or would be non-consensual Uh, in practice. Um, And I like to believe that anything is possible um, if we can find a creative way. And so for me, I personally am comfortable with any sexual fantasy that is uh, risk aware and consensual. Um, And I think that's pretty broad. So if you can find a risk-aware, risk-aware meaning that you know what the potential risks are, and consensual meaning that you're not, um, you know, harming someone in a certain way, um, and everyone is a consenting adult um, who's being involved. Um, And so even with something that is illegal, um, at least in our culture, I may talk to that client about well, are there other other people experiencing this? And who can you connect to in community? First, to feel that you're not the only person, um, but also to be able to talk to other people about their experiences. Um, and then I may also connect them with literature um, and research as well that talks about these topics. So whether that's books like from Jack Morin, I'm not sure if he's the one who said this. Um, it might have been someone else in my books that I read in my grad school, but someone said that like fantasy is the original theater of the mind. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there are a lot of creative outlets for that. Um, and so I think it's important for me to even just talking about that and, and giving them the chance to think of the creative options. It's not giving permission to the illegal behavior. It's saying like, you are also someone who deserves pleasure. Let's find you a way to uh, connect to people and, and get your needs met in a way that does align with your ethics. Um, so that's another conversation too, is like, what what are your ethics? Because look, there are some people out there who don't care about consent, um, who maybe have other personality and mental health things going on where they do act on these things. And that's a whole nother, it's a whole nother podcast, a whole nother topic. So I'm more referring to folks here who are like, I don't want to Act on these things that are non consensual, but I'm trying to figure out how to talk to partners about this. Um, so, mm-hmm. first, I think it's having them get comfortable with even discussing these things out loud, connecting them with community, um, and coming up with are there creative, consensual ways um, to at least explore this interest uh, for yourself so that it's something that you don't feel is totally inaccessible. Um, But I also think with that, sometimes uh, there's a layer of grief that we Mm -hmm. have to process. Um, So sometimes it's grieving who you wish you were, I guess, um, or grieving that you have these fantasies and desires um, or attractions or orientations. Um, And then sometimes it's grieving that you can't act on these things. Um, So sometimes there's grief work involved of like, yeah, maybe this is just going to have to be a fantasy or maybe this is just going to have to be something that um, I have to figure out how to, I guess to use a metaphor, it's like you really want a cheeseburger, but only sliders will ever be available. (laughs) So it's like, how do we grieve the loss of this cheeseburger, if you will, this large, big, plump, juicy one and see if we can find some pleasure in some tastes of that. Um, But that could be, yeah, grieving the loss of what you wish you could have, but aren't having. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think there can be a lot of grief work in that as well. Um, And then, like I said, I think the main thing, and I've said it a few times already, but it is community. Um, So connecting people with other folks that they can talk to, that they can get support on, that they can confide in, that they can get resources and share resources, uh, I think is, is the biggest key.
0: I fully agree that sense of belonging of kind of coming home to a sense of um, who I am as a human makes sense again is really deeply healing and like from that place, even just fantasizing and masturbating to some of these things can feel really different than masturbating while in a shame based state relationship Mm -hmm. with the same internal fantasy. So it's almost like just like a slight orientation shift through this simple yet very difficult process. Right. Well, Um, another,
1: another question I think I would add is mm -hmm. I ask folks, do you want to get rid of the shame or do Mm -hmm. you want to get rid of it completely? Right. Because we're sort of Mm -hmm. acting under this assumption that like, yeah, let's be shame free. Mm -hmm. And I think, some level of shame can be hot. Obviously, Mm. if it is overwhelming, it can be detrimental and make you feel shitty about yourself. But some level of the quote-unquote taboo, the shame is yummy. So there might be folks who are like, no, I don't want to get rid of that because what I like about this is that it's it's wrong and I can never do it and that's so delicious. And like, great, then I don't want to take that away from you Mm -hmm. if it's not making you feel like crap about yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think it's also exploring that most people don't want to get rid of the shame because they're worried that if they do, then they may do something that they'll regret or that isn't in line with them or that harms somebody. Um, and so that's where I'd use the psychoeducation or research to show them that like, actually it's kind of the opposite effect, that shame has this backfire effect for most people. And the more we kind of, like that Baba Duke example, the more we put it in the shadows, the more we push it down, the more we don't talk about it. it it usually has this backfire effect. Um, and so people can hear that on a logical level, but it takes a lot more embodied time and therapeutic practice and community to really believe that on a physical level, because most people's nervous systems are going to hold on to that shame because they're like, this is keeping me safe, right? This is keeping me safe in my relationship. This is keeping me so I don't get in trouble. This is keeping me in line with my ethics. Um, and then I also might get folks who are um, quite religious in their practices, so they want to like be in line with these practices, and that can be a tough one because every uh, fiber of my being is like, well, let's eliminate the shame, but I have to mm-hmm. meet folks where they're at and help them live the lives that are in line and authentic to what's important to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really subjective work as well based on how much do you want to get rid of the shame and can we have it be something else or or change it up in the way that fits for you.
0: And I love this. I think this is where the word integration comes to me. So where it's like, we feel like our sexuality is an integrated part of who we are. It doesn't um, distract us from our world. It can even fuel our world. Um, and thank you for naming those kind of protective elements of shame. That's really beautiful to think about. Um what are some of the cues and what's the process? Like how do we know when we need additional support around this process versus things like reading books, listening to podcasts, um, coming into community. Um, and I also, maybe even before we get there, I want to hear about the process. Like when people go on, community websites and realize that like, not only are there other people, but there's whole communities and subcultures Mm -hmm. organized around these kinks and fetishes, like something like age play, for example, like what happens when people realize that like this whole world is awaiting them?
1: Mm. I think some people, uh, freak out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I imagine (laughs) it could be
0: overwhelming.
1: Yeah. I think, um, some people will even be rejecting of those mm. communities because they don't want to. It's sort of like they're projecting this rejection of themselves onto this community, right? Mm. Like internalized shame and they're they're putting that. So sometimes it's like, oh, I know they're there, but like, I don't want to be with that community just because we like the same thing. Mm. How am I ever going to find someone in that community that also likes the other things that i like like i don't just want to be connected to them because they like the same thing so i think sometimes there's an immediate rejection which to me. i like boobs
0: and baking (laughs)
1: yeah right right but it's like but what you know Hmm. but do you also like these other things or will we get along as a a human yeah um so i think i see sometimes there's this immediate rejection which to me is good info that they're still you know rejecting themselves Mm -hmm. um but then as we work through that there's a, a turning point where uh I see them experience like all sorts of feelings, um, kind of like this the stages of grief. Um, I see anger, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I see anger with, why didn't anybody ever teach me this? Um, why has why is nobody talking about this? How come nobody uh, talked to me about these things? How come uh, I didn't learn this in sex education? Like I've been operating mm-hmm. like this for twenty years, like there's anger. Why uh, there's have I resen- wasted so much time? Yes, I've wasted time. There's resentment. Uh, But then there's also nervousness and excitement and Mm. um, relief that they could connect with folks. So I think it's the whole gamut. And we have to like accept and let those feelings roll in and roll out as a normal part of exploring a new community.
0: Mm. I'm so glad there are therapists like you to support folks in these journeys. Um, What are the cues that people should look for that they might need some additional support? And is there a place people can find therapists competent in these areas? Mm -hmm.
1: Yes. So I am biased because I'm a therapist. And so I do believe that we shouldn't wait until things are really bad to go to therapy. I think it's if you're even asking yourself, would that be a good idea? Do it. (laughs) Mm. Like, even don't wait until things are really horrible, because then it's harder to enact change if you're amidst a survival crisis. Um, Doesn't mean you can't get support if you're in that. But like, I would invite you to do it now. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, I'm biased because I think therapy can be helpful for most folks. Um, But I would say other things would be if you're Not experiencing pleasure, if you're finding yourself isolating from other folks, if you're finding that you're spending more time with that negative voice in your head, uh, if you're finding that the way you talk to yourself is not the way you would talk to an innocent animal or child, um, <laughs> any, of, any of those things are a good indicator that well, you should that's all of us, <laughs> that's all of, I mean, shit, that is a, an ongoing process, as you know, right. Um, so yeah. I'm still working on it myself and this is my field. Um, yeah. but I think that's a good indicator to get some extra support, that's right. um, to connect with community in terms of finding somebody to work with. Um, I would start with, depending on what the interest is, there are usually listservs of therapists that have that specialization. So mm-hmm. even just Googling keywords of like kink uh, informed therapists mm-hmm. um, or whatever the target desire fantasy word is like that and therapist list um, or engaging, you know, in these communities and asking folks if they are familiar with a listserv. Um, So most of the communities that I can think of that have a particular interest, there is a list already that someone has curated out there with Mm. people that they have either gone to themselves or vetted um, as folks who are both informed and understanding about that. Um, Another option is, and, and I think this one can be a little bit harder because it forces people to have to say what the thing is to the therapist and they might not be ready. Um, but things you can ask a therapist is like, if, especially if it's around the sex stuff is saying like, what is your training in sex therapy? Um, another rule out is, um, do you operate with the sex addiction framework? Mm. If they do, I would probably encourage you to stay away. Not Mm. every therapist is like this, but a lot of therapists trained in the sex addiction approach framework. Um, can have a, uh, a background in sort of shaming different and diverse sexual practices. Um, and, and I will preempt ask, the emails yes. and
0: say, we have an episode on that coming up. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Okay. Big conversation.
1: Yes. And there, Thank there's you. so many more nuances, mm-hmm. but so that's a bit of a blanket statement and I don't think it's mm-hmm. true for everyone, but, um, but even
0: that, that sense that you're allowed to ask questions before your first session. Yes. Interview. Yeah. Well,
1: I think a lot of people, when it comes to healthcare, think, and look, sometimes this is a financial issue and they just have to go with who their insurance has. And so that's tough because you often don't get to to feel like you can pick. Um, but I like to tell people like this is your it is your right to be able to ask and have boundaries and things. And if someone is not willing to talk to you about their training, about their certifications, about their specializations, about their comfort levels and just kind of like swats you off, that's probably an indicator that it's not someone that you would feel comfortable with. Um, So yeah, coming up with a few core questions to see what is their experience. Are they sex positive and affirming? Do they have sex therapy training? Um, And how do I feel when I talk to them? Do I feel like I could talk to them about things? Mm
0: beautiful. And we will put some links again in the show notes, not only to Nicoletta's beautiful body of work, but also to some therapy directories and places to get started and continue this conversation. Nicoletta, thank you so much for joining us. Are there any final thoughts or a benediction for our audience you want to offer?
1: Thank you so much for having me. And I really appreciate you being a platform that is also willing to have these conversations and I think, yeah, just a reminder that you are normal and you are special. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I think sometimes when I say to people, you're normal or or like everyone else is coming in with this. Some people are like, oh, but I'm not special. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I want to try to find this balance of like, yes, you are unique and special because you are and you are not alone in your experience. And if you can think of it, there is a community out there for it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Permission to be specifically weirdly you. Yes. Indeed. And find some other people that
1: are specifically weirdly them that you have some overlaps with.
0: (laughs) Who will cherish every ounce of you. Indeed.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The boot. What did you say? Boobs and desserts. You'll you'll find them.
0: (laughs) Indeed. Thank you so much for joining us. We will be back with you next week with another episode of Speaking of Sex. You'll find it all at PleasureMechanics.com.